Skywatchers. Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Dara. And I'm Ophelia. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in August in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you achieve night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you are using a star app on your phone, switch on the red night vision mode. Now on the 2nd of August, the waxing gibbous moon will be at apogee. This means that the moon is at the point in its orbit where it's furthest away from the Earth. And this month, the moon and Earth will be approximately 405,025 kilometres apart. Now that's about 10.1 times the circumference of the Earth at the equator. And then it will reach full moon on the evening of the 7th. One of the best annual meter showers, the Perseid, will peak on the night of the 12th and early morning of 13th of August. With a rate of around 100 meteors per hour, you should be able to spot a few even in the light of the waning gibbous moon. The Perseids, caused by the comet 109P Swift-Tuttle, are visible this time of year because it is the point where the orbit of the Earth and the orbit of the debris belonging to the comet coincide. This debris is also known as a meteor stream. There's also a total solar eclipse on the 21st of August, but unfortunately it will only be visible from a few states in the USA. Now it's been dubbed the Great American Eclipse, and totality will last for about 2 minutes and 40 seconds. Now if you fancy flying to America to see it, I'm afraid you might be out of luck. Hotels have been booked by Skywatchers for the past year and a half. However, in the early morning of the 21st before sunrise, you can have a look for Venus and Pollux. Pollux is the brightest star in the constellation of Gemini and is the closest giant star to the Sun, just under 34 light years away. Venus will be 7.3 degrees south of Pollux in the eastern sky and these objects will be close together for a lengthy period of time. The Moon will be 7 degrees north of Spica on the 25th and Jupiter will be close by too. Now they will be very close to the western horizon and only visible for a short time after sunset. But Spica is actually a binary star system. These two stars are so close together that not even telescopes can split them apart. Instead, this system was detected by the Doppler shift in the absorption spectra of these stars. As a star moves further away from us, its light becomes more red-shifted, and as it moves towards us, the light is blue-shifted. On the 29th, look to the southeastern sky just after sunset to spot the star Antares below the last quarter moon. Antares is also a part of a binary star system. The one visible to the naked eye is the red supergiant Antares A and the smaller but hotter blue-green star is known as Antares B. Antares B is 10 times more massive than our own sun but can only be seen using a telescope. On the same night, have a look for Saturn II. It will appear to the east or left of the moon. And if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. But now for our cosmic news. Hello listeners and welcome back to the cosmic news part of our podcast. This is the part where we talk about some of our favourite news stories from the past month. Now, as you may have noticed, we've been joined by a guest speaker this month, Ophelia. Hello. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. So, uh, Ophelia, I'm going to start off this month and I'm going to break the news to you of what I found. I found a story about a shocking case of indigestion 
in a supermassive black hole. Ooh, what's that? Yeah, what does it even mean? Well, this is about um, a supermassive black hole, and we know that they exist in the centres of very large galaxies. Um, and supermassive black holes, they accrete or feed on material uh, in their surroundings. Right. Um, but there are some supermassive black holes that are feeding so much that they can't actually digest as such all of the material that they're taking in. So this is a case of indigestion. Uh, so this study was led by astronomers at the University of Manchester's Judrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics, and it concerns the Whirlpool Galaxy. Now, Ophelia, you know about the Whirlpool Galaxy. What's quite nice about this galaxy? It's very pretty. It is. It's really it's, pretty in the Hubble Space Telescope yes. pictures. Faces are so on. You can see the spiral arms. Is that one, isn't it? Yes. And actually, it was the first uh, galaxy to be classified as a spiral galaxy. Um, and it's really famous for being an interacting galaxy. So uh, the Whirlpool Galaxy is known as M51, or also NGC 5194. And it's merging with a slightly smaller companion, NGC 5195, but also classified as M51b. And these galaxies actually uh, kind of are locked in a gravitational dance as such. They're intertwining with each other. Every few hundred million years, uh, this smaller galaxy actually falls into the outer arms of the Whirlpool galaxy. And they think that in the next few billion years, uh, they'll actually form one larger merged galaxy as such. Is it as well what's going to happen to our galaxy in Andromeda? Yes, so tell us more then, Ophelia. Well, the Andromeda galaxy is the nearest big galaxy to us, um, and at the moment it's two and a half million light years away. A wow. Text, I know, like, a text message would take two and a half million years to get there, um, but we are rushing towards each other, and astronomers believe in the next four, four and a half billion years or so, uh, we, we're going to get so close, we're going to gravitationally uh, interact with one another and collide. But uh, don't worry, that's roughly when the sun's going to turn into a red giant star and uh, destroy the Earth. So we've got two issues to contend with, the end of our star and also the merging of galaxies. Yeah. All right, well, we've got a few billion years for that. Back to the two galaxies in question then. What's happening as they merge is is that um, the smaller galaxy with its supermassive black hole is actually uh, taking matter out of the Whirlpool galaxy. So as it kind of spins and interacts with it, it's accreting material from the outer arms of the Whirlpool galaxy. Um, and it's forming an accretion disk around it. So this is just a disk of material around that supermassive black hole. Now, incredibly, uh, the supermassive black hole at the centre of that smaller galaxy is equivalent to 19 million times the mass of our sun. Wow. Which is quite a massive black hole, but we know that the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy is even larger. Yes, about 4 million times the mass of the sun. So, yep, and then there are galaxies out there that are even larger than ours, so they would have supermassive black holes which were even larger. But what we're finding is that the disk of material around that supermassive black hole grows so large that it can't actually accrete or digest material efficiently anymore. So matter is eventually blasted out into the surrounding interstellar medium, uh, and this is that kind of case of indigestion. So it's a bit like Christmas dinner and uh, your uncle's just eating a bit too much and maybe let one go. Like a big belter. Yes, Yeah, exactly. that massive case of indigestion. So that's what they've seen. Uh, but how have they seen it? What's the science behind it? And I think this is a great story because it uses the whole of the electromagnetic spectrum. So with our eyes, we only detect optical light, but there are 
or is a whole range of other wavelengths of light that we can't necessarily see without building telescopes to detect so things like x-rays ultraviolet light infrared um, and a whole host of different telescopes have been used to try and detect what's been happening in this indigestion case so um, NASA have uh, an X-ray telescope called the Chandra X-ray Observatory, and it spotted X-ray emissions from this uh, or around the supermassive black hole. There are also um, some new high-resolution images of the core of that smaller galaxy that have been taken with the E-Merlin radio array. So this is a collection, actually, of seven telescopes, um, and they're used in a kind of interferometry arrangement. So instead of using one smaller telescope, by having several telescopes dotted around, it kind of acts as a larger telescope. Okay. Um, and it's actually based at Jodrell Bank and the surrounding area. So there's one at Jodrell Bank, and then the furthest one is actually in Cambridge, and there are others that are kind of dotted around in the Midlands too. Uh, they've also used some archived images from the surrounding area around the supermassive black hole, this smaller galaxy, and that was taken by the Very Large Array. Uh, this is another group of radio telescopes, this time 27 of them, uh, used in New Mexico. And finally, the Hubble Space Telescope has actually detected some hydrogen emission from this galaxy as well. And altogether, the data from these telescopes have actually revealed uh, how the blasts occur and why the matter spreads out as it does. Oh, wow. So it's using X-rays, radio waves and visible light. Exactly. So it's using a whole host of different lights. And it just proves that, uh, you know, if we're just looking with our eyes, we actually don't see a lot of what's happening. But using all those different types, uh, we can make a, a bigger picture or a better picture of what happens. So thinking about why the blasts occur, well, when that accretion process breaks down, so it gets its indigestion, it can't kind of accrete the material, you get a, a massive shock wave forming. So the immense forces and pressures create that shock wave and it pushes matter out into the interstellar medium. Now that matter consists of electrons, electrons being uh, negatively charged particles that we find in atoms. Now these are accelerated very close to the speed of light and they actually interact with the magnetic field of the interstellar medium. Now the interstellar medium is just the surrounding material. Some of the particles in it are charged and so they make or create their own magnetic field. And these electrons that are blasted out in the case of indigestion, they interact with the magnetic field. Now, um, whenever you've got a charged particle like an electron, moving around a magnetic field, it actually makes a spiraling motion. So it kind of follows the field line, but kind of spirals or coils around it. Okay. And you may have heard of something, or possibly not, called synchrotron radiation. Right. I remember learning about this back in physics as well. <laughs> um, this is basically where a charged particle, whenever it's accelerated in a straight line, or it moves in a curved path, it will emit radiation, it will emit some form of light. And these electrons that are whizzing around the magnetic field of the interstellar medium, they actually emit radio waves. Okay. Now what else we see uh, is that the shock wave, so when that indigestion happens, the blast carries uh, that material into the interstellar medium, it heats it up. And the particles in the interstellar medium uh, actually emit x-rays. Now x-rays are very high energy uh, forms of light. Right. And this actually strips electrons off the atoms in the interstellar medium. So it's mostly filled with hydrogen atoms, but all that X-ray emission takes the electrons from those hydrogen atoms, it basically ionizes them. And we see a hydrogen emission too. 
Now, if you're doing A-levels, and maybe if you're doing GCSEs too, you might have heard of energy levels within an atom. Whenever you've got a hydrogen atom, uh, to ionise it, you have to kind of give it enough energy to raise it from the uh, lowest state uh, completely out of the atom. But its highest energy state, which is um, n equals 3, or the third energy state, is very close to the ionisation energy. So it doesn't need much more energy to completely be ionised than to be kind of... uh, To go its most excited. Exactly, to its most excited state. Um, So when we see uh, the hydrogen alpha emission, which is an electron going from the n equals 3 state to the n equals 1 state, so it's de-exciting and it's giving Giving. out energy, if we see that transition, it also tells us that there might be some ionisation taking place. So it's like an indirect inference. Yeah. Uh, And altogether, when we put this together... The basic conclusion they've come to is that the uh, electrons, which are giving out these radio waves, they're actually the progenitors of the X-ray structures that we're seeing. So the X-ray emission from the interstellar medium and the hydrogen emission that we're seeing as well, this all comes from that initial blast, that case of indigestion. So it's amazing, like we said, it's an event that can be seen right across the electromagnetic spectrum. Um, And these arcs, these X-ray emissions that we're seeing, are actually detected to be one to two million years old. So incredibly old. And it actually means that the first traces of matter that were being forced out during this indigestion event actually happened at about the time that our ancestors were learning to make fire. So it gives you an idea of the timescale of when this case of indigestion started. So it's a very long burp that's basically (laughs) been going on. Yeah. So that's my story. Now, Ophelia, you're going to blow us away with yours, aren't you? Well, yes, I hope so. So uh, my story uh, is about how hidden stars could dramatically alter the recorded value for 15 exoplanets size and consequently their density. So an exoplanet is a planet outside of our solar system. They orbit around other stars. At the moment, we've discovered almost 4,000 confirmed exoplanets with thousands more uh, that we think are exoplanets, but we're not quite sure yet. Wow, that's a huge number. 4,000 other worlds outside our solar system. Yeah, I know. We've only really been looking since the early 90s as well, so not that long. So there's probably loads and loads of other worlds out there, and possibly some that are Earth-like too. Uh, Yeah, so uh, astronomers believe, on average, uh, for every single star out there is one exoplanet. So in our galaxy alone, hundreds of billions of exoplanets could actually exist. Um, Now, around about half of all sunlight stars in our sun's neighbourhood have a companion, and they're within uh, 10,000 AUs, or astronomical units uh, of each other. What's an astronomical unit, Athena? That is a good question. So one astronomical unit is the average distance between the Earth and the Sun. Um, So these two stars, they're about 10,000 times further away than than the Sun is to the Earth. So when we're talking about space, we use larger units because we're talking about bigger distances. Yeah, that's that's right. Um, space is big. You can't really use metres or even kilometres because uh, you get to really, really big numbers. Um, so yeah, we, we use uh, slightly different units um, for that. Um, now, these two stars, they orbit around each other. And astronomers uh, have lots of different sort of techniques to, to, to detect uh, an exoplanet. One of the most popular ones uh, is to use the transit method. So when an exoplanet moves across the face of the star, uh, it will cause a dip 
in the star's brightness. Um, this, of course, happens in our own solar system. Um, so as seen from the Earth, you can see Mercury and Venus transit the Sun. And astronomers actually measure a resulting decrease in the star's brightness and use that info to determine the radius and so the density of that exoplanet, so how big and how dense uh, that planet is. That's incredible that we can use just a very small thing like the fraction of light that we are not getting from a telescope and from that work out how big that exoplanet is. I know, ingenious, isn't it? But if a, t- if a telescope measures the combined light of stars, um, the planet size will actually be underestimated. So uh, even really sophisticated telescopes, even space telescopes like um, NASA's Kepler uh, Observatory, they, they can't kind of tell the difference if they're looking at one star or two very close stars. Now, the density of an exoplanet is ca- calculated by using the radius of the, uh, of the exoplanet. So density uh, is mass divided by the volume. To find the volume of a sphere, you cube the radius. So uh, the density will be thrown far out if the radius is inaccurate. So if the radius is wrong, you're going to get the wrong density. And I assume finding the mass of the exoplanet is quite hard in itself. We've not got a massive scale out there in space to actually measure it. Is there any way of estimating the mass? Yes. To find the value of the uh, the mass of the exoplanet, uh, what you need to do is uh, you need to actually use equations she learned at school, so Kepler's laws uh, of motions and Newton's gravitational law as well. Uh, and also you need to look at the conservation of momentum between the uh, the star and exoplanet itself. Okay, so in a closed system you have to conserve momentum and by kind of assuming that, I guess, that the star and the planet are that closed system, you can get an estimate of the mass. Yes, that's right. So if the... Uh, exoplanets uh, are actually bigger than, than what we thought they are, um, then the measured density will be less, maybe uh, smaller than, than what we thought. Um, of course, this means that the, the planet's mass has to stay the same. And this also means that exoplanets that are previously thought to be rocky or similar to the Earth might actually be gaseous. They might be made up of gas instead. Oh, so we don't know yet. There's still that kind of unsolved mystery. Yes, yeah. So we're not entirely sure what kind of kind of exoplanets we've got at the moment. Um, now the miscalculation of the exoplanet's orbital distance, so distance between that exoplanet and a star, uh, can also be caused. And of course, this could this could affect whether the exoplanet is actually found to be in a habitable zone or not. So potentially, if there could be life there, or if it could sustain us as uh, kind of life on that planet, perhaps. Yeah, that's right. And, and, and how likely it is uh, for us to find liquid water on that exoplanet. Cool. Um, so there was a new study carried out by Furlan and Howell. Out of the 50 exoplanets uh, in the Kepler Observatory's field of view, they found that 43 of those exoplanets, uh, in previous reports, they don't take into account uh, of this second star or the light of the second star. And also, 35 of those exoplanets, they found that the exoplanets themselves orbit around a bigger star anyway, so the published sizes uh, won't vary that much. And 15 of those exoplanets, well, they couldn't determine whether the these exoplanets orbit the brighter star or the dimmer star. Uh, and of those 15, five pairs of stars are approximately the same brightness as each other, 
So the densities of the exoplanets will be substantially lower no matter which star it orbits. That's quite interesting as well, because we've talked about the idea that many stars are actually binary systems. And we're here on our Earth and we have one star, our sun in the sky. But possibly on some of these exoplanets, you could be living there and there would be two stars shining in your sky. How, how incredible would that be to, to wake up to and maybe see a sunset of? Yeah, it's, it's exactly like Tatooine from Star Wars. So exoplanets are a, a huge thing and it, it's really nice actually that you found this story because it's something that's ongoing as well. And we're constantly finding out new things, classifying the different types of exoplanets that we found perhaps um, so yeah, nice story, Ophelia. Thank you. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast. Uh, we're going to put uh, this onto Twitter on a poll, and we want you guys to vote for your favourite news story for this month. And also, we should thank Ophelia for being our guest speaker for our podcast this month. So thank you very much for coming along. No problem. Thanks. Bye. Bye.